Our Old Testament lesson this morning is found in Joshua chapter 2. We are reading verses 1 through 24. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land." But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death." And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in this house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. 
And as we gather around your word this morning, Father, we ask that you would give us your spirit that we can understand and know all that you have given to your church. Lord, lead us into right understanding and the relevance of these ancient scriptures to our life today and the work that you give us to do. We ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In late 1992, George Bush, the outgoing president of the United States at that point, ordered the United States military to enter into Somalia. They were to participate in the peacekeeping mission of the United Nations there in war-torn Somalia. It was primarily a humanitarian mission focused on food assistance, bringing food to the people and protecting those resources. However, with the multinational force in place, with the UN peacekeepers, conditions on the ground in Somalia quickly deteriorated. Somali warlord Mohamed Fadr Adid was prosecuting a war against the UN peacekeepers who were not authorized to fire back unless fired upon. They were extremely limited in what they can do. And Adid began attacking and killing peacekeepers, particularly a group of Pakistanis. In response, the UN mission began to evolve. It began to change because of the conditions on the ground. And the objective of the mission turned from short-term humanitarian to actually capturing Adid and then promoting long-term stability. During the evolution of this mission, a columnist at the Washington Post, his name was Jim Hogland, he published two articles expressing concern about the evolving mission in Somalia, particularly from the standpoint of the United States. And in those two articles, he coined a word that has now become a part of the American vocabulary. You can actually find it in the dictionary now. It is the term mission creep. Mission creep just generally refers to the expansion of any mission or project beyond its original goals. And it particularly refers to missions that begin well and then move to catastrophic failure. Hogan was concerned that the UN peacekeeping mission was suffering from mission creep, that the mission was beginning to evolve into something that was completely unsustainable and which the soldiers were not supported to do. Of course, his fears were confirmed in October of 93 when 18 US servicemen were killed in the Battle of Mogadishu. And since that time, and because of those events, the word mission creep has rather helpfully worked itself into the American vocabulary, and not just in relationship to military operations, but rather the word is used across organizational life to talk about how an organization has a mission or a project that it gives itself to, and then the tendency to drift to move off the center of the original purpose of the core commitment that the the mission has and finding themselves centered on something else. Because we all know that this happens in organizational life. It happens in church life where the original purpose becomes muddled if it's not completely forgotten. And as a church, it's important, in fact, essential for us as we talk about the mission of God to talk about the dangers of mission creep. Because to be truly effective in Christian mission, 
The church must be faithful to the call and command of God. To avoid mission creep, it is crucial for us to understand what God's priorities are. It's crucial for us to understand what God's purposes are. And it's crucial for us to understand God's plan for bringing these things to effect. And this morning, as we look at the second chapter of Joshua, we find clarity about precisely a part of the Christian mission. What is it that God wants to do? What are his priorities? What are his purposes? And what are his plans for affecting that? And so there's three things that we see here out of Joshua 2 about the Christian mission. First, we discern the priority of God. At the beginning of the chapter, you note that Joshua sends two spies. He sends them out from a town where Israel had formerly failed in Numbers 25, and they're sent forth into the land to view it. And they go into the land to look at the fortifications of Jericho, but they were also to do something else. You'll note that they enter into the house of a prostitute, a lady of ill repute in the city of Jericho. But the house of a prostitute in the ancient Near Eastern world was not simply a brothel. It functioned somewhat like a crossroads. It was a tavern, it was a hostel, could be somewhat considered the ancient hotel. And of course it was a place where men and women could purchase sex. And so it was a seedy place. And these men of Israel enter into there and they are spying out the land. But what they're doing is not simply looking at the fortifications. That the original term here that we translate spy is a complicated one. And at other places in your English Bibles, it's translated they were secret messengers. And here it's important for us to understand something about these two men and their mission. That they were sent to do something in Jericho. That they enter into Rahab's house. And what they were doing is checking out the fortifications. But they had also come to warn the people about what was coming. Because we learn later in the passage that Rahab and all the citizens, the inhabitants of Jericho, were all very well aware of Israel and of God's mighty acts to deliver them out of Egypt, to bring them through the desert. And now they were on the precipice of the land. And the people's hearts were melting with fear. And so these secret messengers have come. And they come in accordance with Deuteronomy 20 about how Israel was to wage holy war. That the first thing they were to do was sue for peace. To ask the city if it would capitulate and convert and believe in the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. The spies come to confirm the report of God's works and God's ways of the inheritance that he had promised to Israel. And he extended mercy to those who would join with this great cause. And this is what the spies had come to do. And what we learn in the form of the king of Jericho is that the word of God was rejected. Despite the fact that their hearts were melting with fear, they hardened their hearts to this message. And he goes in search of the spies in order to kill them. He wanted to pursue them and do away with them. And oftentimes when we read the second chapter of Joshua, God's wrath towards the city of Jericho that will unfold in the ensuing chapters is seen as capricious. That it's seen as rage and anger that's unbecoming of God. And what gets missed 
is precisely this priority of God. That the priority of God begins in showing mercy to those who are hostile to him, to those who are not aligned with his purposes. This is what he had done in Israel with the Jewish people as he had shown them mercy despite the fact that they were undeserving. And God sends these two spies, checking out the fortifications and also going to warn and welcome the people into God's cause to be reconciled to him. And what's crucial for us is to discern this priority. The Apostle James says it this way, that mercy triumphs over judgment. And when we're dealing with the character of God and the mission of God, we have to hold this fast. If we don't, if we don't see that the priority of God is to show mercy to the works of his hands, to show grace to his creation to reconcile the creation to itself, and that he will exercise judgment if the creation hardens itself towards him, but that his priority is mercy, then friends, the mission will creep. We will move in other directions if we don't see that one of the prime motivating factors for God is showing mercy to the nations and reconciling uh, reconciling them to himself. Our God is merciful, and we are his ambassadors sent to sue for that peace. And so in the mission, we have to hold fast to this. Now, the second piece that's also closely related to this is we discern the purposes of God in Joshua 2. The city of Jericho was melting in fear, but they did reject the word of God. They rejected that God was the creator of heaven and earth and that he had laid claim to the land on which they dwelled. They held fast to their own gods, trusting that those gods would deliver them. They held fast to their idols. But there's one person in this entire story that we learn of that renounces that former way of life. Her name was Rahab. She was a prostitute. And in verses 9 through 11, we see a marvelous profession of faith. Follow along with this once again. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And here we have Rahab professing faith, announcing that she believes in the promise and the plan of this God. And what's crucial for us to pick up and receive here is that this was always the plan of God. If you remember the covenant that he made with Abraham, as we discussed last week, that God singles out Abraham and blesses him. But he doesn't do so so that Abraham can simply be rich with the bounty of God. But he says, Abraham, I'm blessing you, that you might become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That in this very covenantal initial blessing given to the man Abraham, There was this missional impulse of God that Abraham and his family were going to be for the nations. 
And so, yes, Rahab was only one person in the city of Jericho who would be reconciled to God. But that was God's purpose and intent was to reconcile that city. And this Canaanite woman with a disreputable past, a vocation that obviously trespassed the law of God and went outside of it, she was brought in because of her faith, because of her belief. And this was what God was about all along. Consider Psalm 67. May God bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Why? So that his way may be known on earth, his saving power among all nations. That was always God's purpose for the church, for Israel, that they be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And we see that purpose. We understand it. And it's appropriate and right for you to see that we are the spies sent into the inheritance, sent into the land to be ambassadors of peace, proclaiming God's mighty acts, what he has done in Jesus Christ to deliver the nations from the hold of their sin. And that he has done everything to destroy that. And yes, one day he will return and he will return in judgment and in salvation. That those are the flip sides of one coin. And that when God returns, that judgment will bring about salvation because the earth itself will be renewed. That sin and all of its pollution will be scrubbed clean. And yes, there is a judgment coming, but there is an extended plea of mercy. That the nations that don't know their right hand from their left would be reconciled to God. This is his purpose. And yet when we evaluate our own lives and we look at ourselves closely, we know that we fall short of engaging that purpose. Despite that grand narrative, we know that we're often slow to jump inside of it, slow to testify, slow to share the word of God with those around us. And the question becomes, what needs to happen to us? Several years ago, when Melissa and I were first married, she noted that in my family, practice of gift giving at Christmas was fairly routine. My dad likes one type of gift. It's a Lowe's gift card. You stay in that lane and you have a happy grandfather. He loves the Lowe's gift card. He accumulates them through the years uh, for his birthdays and for Christmas, and then he always goes in on a purchase, the Lowe's gift card. Melissa was determined to break out of this rut and so she had found a new product. This was the early 2000s. They were called Crocs, if you remember the kind of rubbery plastic shoe. They were hot. The boys wore them, I wore them. They were the new thing. And so she had purchased a pair of Crocs for my dad. I still remember when he opened them. He looked at them like, what is this? What use do I have for this? Why didn't I get my Lowe's card? You know. And then a few months later, I didn't hear it from my dad, but my mom told me, she said, you know, your dad's been wearing those Crocs. I said, really? She said, yeah. In fact, he won't wear anything else. He's been wearing them to work. With his dress socks, we won't. <laughs> and my dad became somewhat the Croc evangelist. <laughs> 
Everybody needed Crocs. They were great for your feet until, until they called plantar fasciitis or things like this. But Crocs, dad loved his Crocs. And he talked about his Crocs because they had changed and revolutionized his life, obviously. <laughs> he was surprised by it. And friends, this is what has to happen to us, though. If we're to become those people who are aligned with God's purposes for the nations, what it means for us is that we commend to others what we cherish, what's really of first significance. But if we're taken up with other narratives, with other things, with other goals, with other priorities, if we think more about the well-being of our family, or if we think more about our own physical health, or if we think more about the education of our children, or we think more about our own possessions and accumulations, our own plans, that those purposes will drown out this great purpose but this is the one great purpose of God that he's written inside the creation. Since Adam and Eve decided to rebel against him and turn away from him, and we have all joined them, that the great purpose of God is to reconcile all things, and he welcomes us to cherish that we have been included in that reconciliation. And then one of our prime purposes is to go and proclaim that and share that with all the nations, that people like Rahab would be brought in, that they would be redeemed and restored. And so take up your role as that spy, as that ambassador. If we don't, the mission creeps, and the mission ultimately slides and is lost. The final piece that we discern here has to do with God's way of salvation. We've seen the priority of God's character, what he's doing in the world. We've seen his purpose to reconcile the nations. But now we see the manner in which he does so, the way that he brings this. In Rahab, there is this awesome picture of conversion. And in our own mission, what's important for us is that we understand the way of that conversion and we clearly get what that looks like so that we know how it works in us and how also we commend that to other people. This is the gospel that we preach and that we live. And there's three things going on here, I would suggest to you, inside of Rahab's conversion. First, you see her profession. We just read the verses in 9 through 11, where Rahab confesses faith in the Creator God, the Maker of heaven and earth, who had made a covenant with Abraham and his children and his children's children. That the God who made the world was actually the God who then made promises. And because he was the God who made the world, he was going to fulfill every one of those promises. And so the land on which she lived belonged to this God. Rahab comes to that conclusion. And rather than melting in fear and hardening her heart, she turns and professes. It's the first step there. The second thing we see, we see Rahab's risk and we see her self-renunciation. The king of Jericho learns of the plot. As the spies were attempting to recruit allies inside the city of Jericho, and they were pursuing peace with them, the king learns of it. He cuts the mission short, and he comes to Rahab and says, turn them over. She then says the men have already left town, and she had hidden them inside of her roof. She does all of this at great risk to herself. She then helps them out of the city wall by the scarlet cord, lets them down, tells them where to hide. Her faith 
resulted in risk-taking. And her faith has resulted in this self-renunciation where she has turned on all of her former allegiances, every one of them. She turned on the city that brought her prosperity. She turned on the inhabitants. She turned on the king. She turned on all of her gods. And why did she turn on all of those allegiances? Why did she break her alliance with all of them? It was because she found something better. She found something true. She believed that the God of Israel was the true God. And so it led to this self-renouncing, self-laying aside type of faith where she takes risk and her actions follow her beliefs. The third thing we see about this way of salvation is that Rahab is grafted into a community. Despite the fact that she was a Canaanite, Rahab was welcomed into the church. You see in verses 12 through 13 and then in verse 21 that Rahab swears a covenant with these two Israelite men. And she says, since I have helped you, will you show the same kindness to me and to my family? And by the way, this is a crucial Old Testament concept. And on this concept, it's why we baptize our children and our children's children in their youngest of days. That the salvation of God is related to the household. And we find this pattern repeated in the book of Acts. That Rahab has the men swear a covenant. That they would show the kindness of God to her and to her entire family. And they said, so be it. They swore their faithfulness to her. They simply said, use this scarlet cord, which we don't know exactly what that cord was about. That cord was most likely a sign of her own trade, of her vocation. And they said, hang this in the window and you will be protected when the city falls. And they did protect her. In the coming chapters, we'll see that she and her household were spared. And that Rahab then didn't become a second-class citizen in Israel. In fact, we find Rahab's name in a very unique place later in the pages of Scripture. It's in Matthew chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where Matthew gives us a genealogy of Jesus Christ speaks of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and then walks down from Abraham all the way to Jesus. And there, right up at the head, is mentioned this woman, a Canaanite prostitute. And there she sits in the genealogy of Jesus, one who is grafted into Abraham, one who is reconciled by faith, one who had been brought into the community of faith and belief, And what is so crucial for us here is what we learn about the plan of God for reconciling sinners. He brings us into a community. And that community is not defined by our social class. It's not defined by the color of our epidermis. It's not defined by our background and our particular failures and whatever flavor they may take. But rather that community is defined by creed, by belief by trust in the purposes and the promises of God. All of these purposes and promises are fulfilled in Jesus. And that community that God is building today, the church, which welcomes people from its mission into its walls, that's the community that's one in Jesus Christ. That we stand before God in Him or we don't stand at all. 
We don't bring anything else to commend ourselves to God. And so Rahab can come. And any of the other number of disreputable people that we find in the pages of the Bible, and any other number of disreputable people that sit in this church today or sit in our city today, that God is reconciling sinners and bringing them into the church to partake in this community. That's the way of God's salvation. The purpose of God is for the nations in Jesus Christ. The priority of God is to show mercy and to reconcile his creation to himself. And he will also exercise judgment when that mercy is rejected. These simple commitments of God, knowing these in the church, keep us from that creep holding fast to them, cherishing them, believing that these things are more important than all else. That's the way the church preserves its mission. And so let's hold on to it. Let's pray. Father, we know that we are people like Rahab, that in all our various ways we sin and rebel against you, and yet you have been for us in Jesus Christ and you've reconciled us to yourself. And you call us now by your command to be committed to your priorities and your purposes. We ask that we would take up that noble task, that we would engage it, that we would declare our Lord Jesus and his grace and his mercy to all the nations of the earth. Help us to do so, and may we do so with great strength and power. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.